0: Uh, anniversary. I had quite a week this week, uh, spent part of it in Virginia Beach. Um, Caroline's father was um, installed in a change of command, uh, and he took over command of the USS Harry S. Truman, which is a uh, nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, has two nuclear reactors on board, and it's made up of 100,000 tons of steel, and it floats. Just... It's just mind-boggling. And I just was really digging this. I was really excited. I didn't really care that he was becoming. No, I did care he was becoming commander. But just to be on board a active aircraft carrier and be part of this, uh, the ceremony uh, and to see the F-18s there. And We got to go up to the captain's quarters uh, and had a reception there. And then he took us to the, the bridge. I got to sit in the captain's chair. I asked if I could drive the carrier, you know, just around the block or something. Turns out you're supposed to be trained for that sort of thing. They didn't let me. They said no. Who knew? Um, so I was like, I don't want to take it, you know, across the pond, just around the block. Uh, but they didn't let me do that. Uh, and there was a lot of formalities. And there was this service. And, and it, I don't know. It, it, do you feel this way? It seems to me in our culture, we've lost the whole idea of what it means to honor right. and to show respect. And I'm in this service. and They got the full band. And there's hundreds of soldiers there. There were six admirals in attendance. As they handed over command of the aircraft carrier to him. And there was just a certain amount of, of honor and respect and awe of what was happening. It was like a big deal. And when they would ring the bell, when, when the captain steps on board, they ring the bell and they announce arriving. And they announce the name. And there were six admirals. And they would ring the bell and announce every time an admiral would arrive. And do you know when they went ding ding, admir- arriving, admiral, whatever, none of the soldiers ran up and said, hey, what's up, big A? No, they, they stood at attention. Yes. It just occurred to me, sometimes I think at church, you know, we should, at the beginning of the service, ring the bell and say, Jesus is here. Amen. And there should be a certain amount of awe yes. and respect for what's going on, yes. that he's present among us. But that wasn't even the biggest thing that really struck me. Something really hit me uh, I, towards the end of the ceremony. They had done the whole thing. It was powerful. They had read the command. They read the orders. Their commission, by the way, they read the commission out loud. And it just occurred to me as Christians, we have a commission. We, have, we call it the Great Commission. And after he's received authority over the ship, after that's been given to him, he's read his orders, they go to turn, and they're going to step out. They're going to walk out. And so they, again, ring the bell, and they announce them as they leave. Only this time they didn't say, Captain Gavin Duff, departing. Do you know what they said? No. Does anybody know? No. All right. Maybe it says no. Do we have any naval people in here? When they announced his departure, they said, Harry S. Truman, departing. And it took my breath away. Here he is, he's he's been given his marching orders, he's got his command from on high, he's got authority to do it, and now he takes the name of the ship on himself, and his call sign now is Harry S. Truman. It just occurred to me, see, we have Jesus, who after his resurrection, we're the only army in the world who gets our marching instructions from our leader after he died and came back to life. And in the Great Commission, he says, all authority's been given to me. All of them. Let me just ask you a question. How much is all? All, oh, like 100%, right? Yes. So, so if Jesus has 100% of authority, how much does that leave for the devil? Zero. I know, you, you're, it was my understanding there would be no math at church. No, okay, just one. Zero. And he said, all authority has been given to me. So what? So you now go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And when you do that, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. You know what I think we ought to do? When we leave here today, we ought to ring the bell and say, Jesus Christ departing. Amen. Because we carry his name and his authority. Because you know what, you guys? The gospel changes everything. It changes everything, even the way we leave church. We've been in this study in the book of Galatians, so if you have your Bibles, uh, open them to the book of Galatians. We've been walking through the Galatians, and Galatians is all about the gospel, right? And the gospel is the good news that Jesus is Lord. In fact, when when Paul started in chapter 1, he starts off, chapter 1, verse 3, the Lord Jesus Christ, right there he says he's the Lord, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. So right there, he gives us kind of a thumbnail sketch of what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news that Jesus as Lord and he has rescued us. In other words, because of what Jesus did on the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, he has justified us. In other words, we've been declared holy. We've been declared declared righteous because of what Jesus did. But it's not just justified, we've been accepted. God accepts us. Not only that, he adopts us into his family. We now can call him Abba. See, the gospel is not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus did, we're accepted. And we're adopted into his family. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing. Let's just be clear about that. It's not Jesus plus how hard you work at it. It's not Jesus plus how many Bible verses you memorize. It's not Jesus plus your good works or your good looks that get you into heaven. It's not even Jesus plus the fact that you tithe, though please do that. It's none of that. It's just Jesus. In fact, if I I had to summarize the whole book of Galatians in a single sentence, it would be this. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. What Jesus did was sufficient. For our forgiveness, it was sufficient for our, for our adoption into the family of God. It was sufficient for us to be transformed into his image and his likeness, and that changes everything. Man, if you really let that in, if you really let the gospel in, that it's what Jesus did on the cross, and it's, and it's a finished work, and it's sufficient, if you let that in, it'll change everything. And as we've been going through the series, we've noted a few things. Let me just remind you of them. First of all, we said, if you really let the gospel in, you will never look down on anybody ever again. And if you ever are looking down on somebody, you're not thoroughly letting the gospel transform you. Amen. Why? Because how can you ever look down on anybody? You didn't save yourself?" Sure. You say, like, "Well, you know, <coughs> excuse me, you might say, "Well, I, I haven't committed the sin that they did, no, but you committed a sin." And sin is sin, you know, if poison that kills you, it doesn't matter if there's two drops or five drops. If it's one drop will kill you, it don't matter. And so you sinned and fell short of the glory of God, and Jesus saved you. You didn't save yourself. And it's not even like Jesus did 99% and you did 1%. You know what the Bible says? Even the faith that you demonstrated was a gift from him. 100% from him. So how are you ever going to look down on anybody ever again? You can't so if you let the gospel in you you won't Uh, secondly if you let the gospel in you're never going to be jealous of anybody ever again why because the gospel says I'm an heir I'm a son of God what could you possibly have that's better than that what could there possibly be that would be better than being adopted as a son or a daughter of God nothing I don't care how nice a car you have That's, that's chump change compared to my inheritance in God so you never have to be jealous of anybody ever again. You never have to be afraid of anything ever again. What do I have to fear? My Abba owns the place. All right. And when I say the place, I don't mean this building. I mean this universe. Amen. He owns it all. What do I have to fear? Listen, if you let the gospel in, you'll never be controlled by what people think ever again. Man, if you, you don't have to have the approval of people when you have God's approval. See, if God knows me and God's accepted me, I don't have to try to win your approval to be okay. I mean, we, earlier in the series, we talked about it. Paul said it this way. Paul said, listen, I don't care what you think about me. But then again, I don't even care what I think about me. I care what he thinks about me because you're not the one that justifies me. I don't even justify myself. He justifies me. Right. And so because of what I've done, because of what Jesus has done on the cross, I'm accepted in the beloved. I'm already in. So I don't have to get your approval to feel good about myself. Because he's already de- demonstrated that I have surpassing worth. So you know what that does? That sets me free to really love you because I don't need anything from you. And it's just a great thing. You want to talk about being free, man, to walk around like nobody owes you anything. Why? Because I already have Jesus and he's the supreme treasure. Man, if you let that in... If Jesus is your supreme treasure and you know you already have him, then it doesn't matter what the world says or thinks or gives you or doesn't give you. And nobody owes you anything. Man, you're talking about being free. And then we said also, if you really let the gospel in, you're never going to see your problems the same way ever again. Yeah, I mean, even problems that come, they're just there. God is going to bring good out of evil. He's going to use everything, Romans 8, 28, in all things, God works for the good of those who love. And because of the gospel, I know I'm, I'm... I love him. I'm following him. He's going to take all these, if it's bad stuff, he's going to work it for my good and his glory. Every single time. Even the whole book of Galatians. Paul says, you know, the reason that I preached the, the whole gospel to you was because of an illness or because of a physical weakness. There it was. It was a bad thing. And what did God use? He turned, used it for the good of the Galatians and they heard the gospel. So no matter what happens in my life today, guess what? I know God's going to turn it around and use it for good. I can have confidence. Why? Because I let the gospel in. And here's the sixth one, which is the one I'm going to add today. If you let the gospel in, you will never see your neighbor the same ever again. You don't do it. So I'm going to look at one verse. We're in chapter 5 of Galatians. I know you're open to Galatians. Turn to chapter 5. i want to look at a single verse that dad actually read two weeks ago, Phil kind of covered it a little bit last week and I'm not preaching it again because they didn't do a good job, I don't want anybody to think that. Uh, They did a great job, but the reason I'm preaching is that, you know, the the Bible is so deep, you will never plumb the depths of it. The revelation, there's always more there to learn. So we're gonna look at this verse, Galatians five, verse 14, a single verse today. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the verse. Now here's my question. How can the entire law be summed up in one command? In other words, if I love my neighbor as myself, Paul is saying we fulfilled the whole law. How in the world does that happen? Well, to to explain that, we need to look at a scene from Jesus' life. So you're in Galatians 5. What I want you to do now is flip backwards to Luke chapter 10, and I want you to see a scene from Jesus' life where Jesus demonstrates what this means. Luke 10, and I'll begin reading in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law, is what the NIV translates it, other translations say a lawyer, stood up to test Jesus. Now, I don't know what Jesus was thinking in this moment. I don't know if he was going, oh, a lawyer, great. Um, Or what? I don't know what he was thinking. But it's clear, the text says the lawyer's there not to learn from Jesus, but to test him. Now, before you judge him too quickly, let me ask you a question. Do you always come to Jesus with the right motives? Or have you ever come to Jesus to test him? Or have you ever come to Jesus just for what you get out of him? Not because you love him and, and, and you just want to serve him, right? So, so before we judge this guy, let's just, you know, let's hear what happens. He's there to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26. He replied, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus was good at asking questions. So he turns it around to the guy. He says, what do you think it is? Verse 27. He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Now stop right there. Don't read that too quickly. The lawyer here, as many lawyers do, as many of us do, gives the right answer. Right, so he knows Deuteronomy 6, which is the great declaration of the Shema Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. Right, he he knows that. He quotes that. He knows Leviticus 19, which says, To love your neighbor as yourself. Maybe he's heard Jesus preach this before, because we know Jesus preached this at other times. We know from Mark chapter 12, Matthew chapter 22, when Jesus is asked, What's the greatest commandment? He says, It's to love God. Agape God, and and if you know anything about agape love, agape love is love without strings. It's love regardless of the payback. It's not, if you love me, I will love you. No, it's, I will love you regardless of how you treat me. That's agape, regardless of the payback. And Jesus said, Matthew 22, that the greatest commandment was to love him, to agape God, and then he said, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said, All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Everything. What is the most important thing in life? Here they are. Love God, love your neighbor. Now in our culture, the whole idea of being a good neighbor has been reduced to a sort of sentimental cliche. I I don't know what when you hear the word neighbor, I don't know what you think of. I, of course, hear Mr. Rogers. You know? It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Beautiful day in the neighborhood. Could you be mine? Would you be mine? Won't you be? Okay. We sell insurance with the whole idea of being a good neighbor. Like a good neighbor. See, you already know. safe Farm is there. One author said, be kind to your neighbor. He knows where you live. Okay. But all of those things about what it means to be a neighbor are really kind of, you know, cute and that kind of thing. But what the Bible says about neighbors is anything but cute. It's kind of scary what he says here, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. You gotta be kidding me, as yourself? I mean, think about what he's saying here. It's overwhelming. It seems to demand that I tear the skin off of my body and I wrap it around another person so that I feel that I'm that other person and all the longings I have for my safety, all the longings I have for my health, All the longings I have for my success and my happiness, I now feel for that person as if he were me. (laughs) This is staggering. Think about this for a second. As you long for food when you're hungry, so you long for food for your neighbor. As you long for clothes for yourself, so long for your neighbor to be well clothed. As you want to be safe and secure, so seek comfort and security for your neighbor. As you want your life to count. You want your life to be significant. So desire that for your neighbor. John Piper puts it this way, commenting on the verse. He says, make yourself seeking the measure of your self-giving. Yeah. Did you hear that? Yeah. Let this in for a second. Love your neighbor as yourself. I Man, that word as is, is radical. It means if you're energetic about pursuing your own happiness, be energetic about pursuing your neighbor's happiness. If you're creative in pursuing your own happiness, be creative in pursuing your neighbor's happiness. If you are persevering, like you get told no once, but you keep on persevering. No, I'm gonna persevere for your own happiness. Do that for your neighbor. In other words, it's not just seek the same things, but seek them in the same way, way, the same zeal, the same energy, the same creativity. And so what's Jesus saying? You can actually measure what your pursuit of your neighbor's happiness should be by your own pursuit of happiness. (laughs) Whoa. This seems crazy to me. It did to the lawyer too. (laughs) So look what he says. Verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus. Okay. Okay who is my neighbor right because the lawyer's feeling the heat and I do too when I read this I feel the heat I can relate to the lawyer I'm like him in a lot of ways surely you can't live this way with everyone so let's try to define who is and isn't my neighbor right because if you can define somebody as not your neighbor okay I don't have to love them like myself Right? It's, it's, it's the same way. If you define somebody as less than human, you can mistreat them and nobody cares. A number of years ago, I came home one day and the boys were playing like on an Xbox and there, it was really violent. They were shooting all these people. And I'm like, that's a really violent game, shooting all the people. And they're like, no, dad, it's okay. They're not people. They're zombies. And I went, oh. Well, let me shoot some zombies. I like, what? It's not human. This is what the Nazis did in World War II with Jews. They defined Jews as something less than human. And when you define somebody as less than human, you can mistreat them. It's what we do in abortion every day. It's not a human being. It's, not a, it's, ba- it's just a fetus. So nobody cares if you kill it because it's not human, right? So if you can, that's what the lawyer's doing. Let's define somebody as less than my neighbor and then I don't have to love them. So the lawyer says, Jesus, let's do some semantics here, okay? Let's be legally precise since definitions are important in the law. Let's define who is my neighbor. And Jesus, being the great teacher that he is, wants to involve the listener in discovering the truth for themselves, which by the way, this is a great way to teach See, it's one thing for me to get up here and just tell you, here's what the truth is, and you memorize it. It's another thing if I say, okay, come with me, and let's discover truth together, right? And so this, Jesus was the master at that, so he, 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 he's already asked him a question. Now he says, let me tell you a story. Verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, a man, stop right there, he has no name, so it means it could be you or me. We could be this dude. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and it's literally down from 2,500 feet above sea level in Jerusalem to 800 feet below sea level in Jericho. He's going down when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. He's not all dead. He's not even mostly dead, but he is half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. Okay, so okay, good guy. So he's going to take care of this, right? And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now just stop right there in the story. There's a certain cadence, okay, certain rhythm in the story, and it goes like this came, saw, passed by. Which by the way, again, before we judge them too quickly, is often the cadence of our lives. Come, see, pass by. Excuse me. Now note, these are the professional good guys. The people who are listening to this story, they're going, a priest and a Levite, what is that in modern day parlance? It's basically the pastor and the worship leader. And these are the guys who know the law and the prophets. And what does the law say? The law says if your neighbor's donkey falls into a ditch on the Sabbath, you can pull him out. So if you see a human being beaten up and bleeding in a ditch on the Sabbath, you're going to, made in the image of God, you're going to help them, right? These are the people who know the prophets. And what did the prophets say? Micah 6, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? So they know, right? This is what God would want. So they're gonna do the right thing. Wrong. I want you to hear me. You are never more in danger of being the bad guy than when you're proud of being the good guy. Self righteousness will make you forget the gospel, and you will treat your neighbor as if you're better than them. If you think you won your salvation, if you think you saved yourself, you're never in more danger than in that moment. Verse thirty-three. Now here it comes. Jesus, he always tells these twists in these stories. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. Aha! Okay. Thought the listeners. The villain returns to the scene of the crime. They're assuming, when Jesus is telling their story, they're assuming the Samaritan is the one that beat them up. Because Samaritans in those days were considered by the Jews just to be half-breeds. They were descendants of the weakest and the poorest in the land. The only reason the Samaritans existed, according to the Jews, is that they weren't good enough to be carried off into slavery however many hundreds of years earlier. They didn't worship in the right place. They didn't worship in the right way. They didn't even have all the scriptures. Jews would actually go around Samaria so they didn't have to interact with those dirty, yucky Samaritans. So obviously, he's the bad guy. But Jesus says, the bad guy is actually the good guy. Look at the rest of the verse. And when he, that's the Samaritan, saw him, he took pity on him. Whoa, 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 wait, whoa, whoa. wait a second, wait a second. The Samaritan is the good guy in the story? No. Jesus, you're telling the story wrong. Have you ever had this in your family? Your family's probably not like this. But in our family, if one of us is telling the story and one of the other ones thinks they're not doing a good enough job, they're like, no, 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 no I, stop. I'll tell the story, right? Because we all remember the story slightly differently, especially one certain son that I have. He tells everything in, like, technicolor or something. It's, it's, so we have to, you know, adjust and I'm sure they're listening and he says, the Samaritan, they're like, whoa, no, Jesus, no. You're not telling the story right. See, because it doesn't arrest us. Like I'm telling you the story, but some of you didn't feel arrested when I said a Samaritan. You didn't go, oh. it doesn't arrest, you didn't, you weren't, it didn't disturb you. So the only way I think that you right now can get the same emotional feeling that that this lawyer had when Jesus told this story is if we changed it to say, and then a member of the Taliban walked by. Now, what did you feel when I said that? Did it kind of like make you a little uncomfortable? It made me uncomfortable to say it. That's what they're feeling. That's what. That's the shock. Wait, whoa, whoa, wait, no, 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 they're the bad guys. Verse 34. So this member of the Taliban, he said, he went to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and he took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have had. Now look, the Samaritan here gives us a new cadence to the story. Remember the cadence was came, saw, passed by. Now the Samaritan shows up and it's came, saw, had compassion. And by the way, compassion always takes action. And I know the NIV, if you test NIV positive, it says he had pity on him. But really, compassion is a better translation because pity is an emotional response. If I have pity for you, I feel bad for you. I feel, oh, isn't that sad that you're hurting? Compassion may have an emotional element, but it always takes action. See, the Greek word for compassion, it occurs actually a number of times in the New Testament. And it's descriptive of Jesus when he healed somebody. Jesus was moved with compassion, so he healed this person. Or it describes God's compassion for us. So don't miss the irony. In the story, the Samaritan is actually acting more like Jesus than the priest or the Levite. The dude's getting paid to represent Jesus. Or in their culture, in representing Yahweh, God. Right? And the Samaritan is reflecting the character of God more than the people who prided themselves on knowing God. We know God. We have the whole word of God. We're the people of God. We're not like those dirty, yucky people over there. And the dirty, yucky person over there is actually reflecting the character of Jesus. (laughs) Now here comes Jesus, verse 36. I told you he's the master question asker. Which of these three Do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Did you see how Jesus shifted the question? The lawyer's question was, who's my neighbor? I need to define who my neighbor is so I know who I have to love and who I can just mistreat. That was his question to Jesus. Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question. Here's the right question. Not who is my neighbor, but who acted like a neighbor to the half-dead dude? See, the question isn't, can I define my people as outside my responsibility to love? The real question is, am I going to be the neighbor who loves? Verse 37, the lawyer replied, the one who had mercy on him. He can't even say the Samaritan. Can't even say it. Can't bring himself to say the words. The third dude. And here's where Jesus drops the bomb on the lawyer and on me and on you. Verse 37, Jesus told him and me and you, go and do likewise. (laughs) Wasn't a suggestion. Jesus apparently didn't have trouble giving commands. And it's in the present tense in Greek, which means continuous action. Go and keep on going and do likewise and keep on doing that. Notice what he's saying here. This this is more than, hey, hey, everybody, give everybody a hug after church today. I mean, that's good. But this is way more radical. It's way more uncomfortable. It's way more costly because it's easy to talk about in general, detached terms, sort of ethereal language about loving our neighbors, loving the world, let's just love everybody, love the whole world. It's uncomfortable when you bring it home. As one person said, it's no chore for me to love the whole world. My only real problem is my neighbor next door. And that's true, isn't it? It's like, it's pretty easy. I can stand up here and say, hey, let's all love everybody. And, we, and you guys can all say, hey man, let's love everybody. It's another thing to love somebody who's being a jerk to your face. Here's the deal. We started with this question. The answer to the question about how loving your neighbor sums up the entire law is this. Loving your neighbor reflects your love for God. You want to know what loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength looks like? It looks like loving your neighbor as yourself. Don't take my word for it, that's Jesus' word. Matthew 7, verse 12, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you for this sums up the law and the prophets. Jesus said, you going and treating somebody the way you want to be treated sums up the law and prophets. How can he say that? Because when you love your neighbor as yourself, it demonstrates the prior love of God. Romans 13, Paul Paul puts it this way. We We started in Galatians, we went to Luke and Matthew, now we're in Romans. Romans 13, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another for he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be, are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. And look at verse 10. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Wow. Now, in both of those texts, as well as Galatians 5, loving God isn't mentioned. Why is that? Because loving our neighbor is the visible, tangible, practical evidence of our love for God. 1 John 4, verse 20. Listen to this. Listen to this. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he's given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is a hard verse to misinterpret. I like the way Dorothy Day, you know, comments. Dorothy Day commenting on this verse said famously, I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. Did you hear that? She's basing it on that text. You can't say I love God and you hate your brother. I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. Yikes! If She's only half Right? Listen, in the act of loving our brothers and sisters, what are you doing? You're demonstrating the prior love of God. Jesus said it this way, John 13, verse 35. By this will all men know you're my disciples. If you love one another. That's how people are going to know. Listen, I want you to hear me. According to the scriptures, I just read you, what, eight of them? According to the scriptures, the person in this room right now that's in here right now, who is the most Christ-like, the person closest to the heart of Abba, our father, is not the person who can preach the most inspiring sermon. It's not the person who can sing the most beautiful song. It's not the person who can write the most eloquent newsletter. It's not the one who can make the most money or make us roar with laughter. It isn't the most prophetic. It's not even the person who speaks in tongues the most. It's not the best parent or child or grandkid. It's not the smartest person in the room. It's not the most powerful person in the room. And it's certainly not the best looking person in the room. The person in this room closest to the heart of the father is the one who loves the most. And that isn't my opinion. That is the word of God that will judge us. So how does this story end? What does the lawyer do? Did you see it in the text? The answer is, I mean, just look down, look down at Luke 10. How does it end? We don't know. Right? The text doesn't say, did he go, oh man, okay, I'm going to go love my neighbor now. Because that's going to demonstrate my love for God. Is that, I don't know. I mean, I, I think Luke wants us to put ourselves in the lawyer's shoes because if we're honest and, 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 and we're a lot like him, we're supposed to supply our ending to the story. We're being invited. Luke is saying, let me give you this encounter with Jesus. I'm not going to tell you how the lawyer responded because the question is not how the lawyer responded. The question is, see, you, you thought you were in church just to go to church and do something religious today. You're in church because God is speaking to you. How will you, not the person sitting next to you, how will you end the story? Because here's the deal. We all live on the road to Jericho. This parable is not just a parable Jesus. This is a parable we live every day. This is a parable of our life. And the truth is, You've been the guy beaten and bleeding. Maybe not physically, but emotionally. There's a lot of people in this room, all of us. We've been through stuff in life, and we've been the guy beaten and bleeding. Now, sometimes it's hard to know when you come to church because we're all, except for a few Eeyores, we're all smiling all the time. There's a few of you who are kind of grumpy. But other than that, almost all of us are always smiling. So we don't know who, sometimes I wish when you came to church that somebody was laying over in the ditch because at least we'd know who needed help. Listen, we've all been the guy who's beaten and bleeding, and if that's you, and if, that, if you feel like you're beaten and bleeding this morning and you're half dead, I got good news for you. Here's the good news. Jesus sees. Jesus is the good Samaritan who sees and has compassion. You are not alone. You are not forsaken. He hasn't left you. He is Emmanuel, God with us. But here's the truth. If we tell the truth. All of us in here, we've been the beaten and bleeding guy and we've been the professional good guys who came, saw, passed by. We've been those guys. And Jesus in the story, you know what he's doing? He's inviting us to be like the good, go and do likewise. Now, let me be clear in case there's any confusion. I'm not talking about people who would manipulate this text and use it to get their way. Codependency is not love. Just so we're clear, enabling someone to say and stay in self-destructive behavior is not love. Enabling people not to grow, enabling people not to be responsible is not loving your neighbor as yourself. I think you know that's what I mean. I think you know I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about an authentic, risky, costly love of neighbor. Let me tell one more story and then we'll be done. I, I've told this story before and you'll forgive me for those of you who've heard the story before, but it was such a life-changing moment for me. I'll tell this story till the day I die. It was 2014 and we were in the West Bank in Bethlehem. And we're with the team here from the church and we were there doing like half the trip was mission trip and we're doing a medical clinic with some of the docs from church here. and we were doing it among the Palestinians in the West bank. And then part of the trip was sightseeing. And one night we were, we were in Bethlehem and a lot of people think Bethlehem, you know, a lot of people think all Palestinians are Muslims, but they're not. Um, Bethlehem was like 30% Christian we're in Bethlehem, and one night we didn't have anything we had to do. And so we, were, we had gotten permission to go up to the top of this building on the roof of the, it had a flat roof to go up and to pray out over the city of Bethlehem. If you've ever been there or seen pictures, Bethlehem's like kind of on these, like, it's really hilly. And it's kind of built onto the hills, and you can see from really far. You can see the whole, I mean, just from really far away. So we go up on the roof, and we're going to have a prayer time and pray out over Bethlehem. And the guy who brought us in, he asked through his translator to the, the YWAM leader that we were with, um, could he say something before we prayed? And, you know, I'm thinking, okay, if you've ever, for those of you who spent any time in the, in the West Bank, you know that a lot of times you're, you're gonna be, it's going to be a political statement, or, you know, and we, we want you to hear things from our perspective, which is, which is great and good. But we, we weren't really there for politics that night. We were just there to pray. And I'm like, okay, just, just, just do it real quick. You know, just give him two or three minutes is what I said. And then he opened his mouth and he began to speak and as he started speaking before the translator even started speaking I knew oh my goodness this is different than what I thought and and you could feel you could feel the presence of God and he told a story and this story was this that he was a member of Hamas and I'm thinking oh and he said not long before that, he had an experience in his house. It was on a Thursday night when he was praying to God and he asked God to reveal himself to him. And as soon as he prayed that, the door of his house flew open and in walked a man in white. Now, here's the thing, having worked with Muslims for many years, I've heard these stories of the man in white, but I've never actually met somebody So I thought they were maybe an old wives tale or like, you know, evangelically speaking, you know, like people were exaggerating. But this guy tells a story. the door flies open in walks the man in white. He falls to his face, this guy. And he says, who are you? And it's like right out of the book of Acts. The man in white says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. So obviously he repents. And as he's telling us the story, the next thing he says is, so I have remained a member of Hamas to love my neighbor as myself so that the rest of Hamas hears who Jesus is. And then one of the young people in our group asked a question, such a good question. She raised her hand and through the interpreter, she said, isn't that kind of dangerous? And he replied, Not patting himself on the back, not not getting us to feel sorry for him. He just said it. I'm probably going to die for my faith. And then he said, and I will never forget this as long as I live. It's the reason I tell this story to the day I die. The next thing out of his mouth was, but if you saw what I saw, you wouldn't even ask me the question. And then he said, will you pray for me? I said, no way, man. You pray for us. (laughs) Some of you are offended right now. I did pray for him, okay? Man, our pastor went all the way over. You didn't pray for that dude. I did pray for him, okay? My point is, I think that dude's way ahead of me. I want him to lay hands on me and pray for me. I want to see Jesus like that. You know what happened to him? He saw Jesus. He encountered Jesus. And what did it do? It changed his life. And what was the response? How did he show his love for God? By loving his neighbor as himself. By the way, this is the way this story leads us to Jesus. See, I I have heard this sermon preached. I've heard this text preached. I've even preached it myself and it became kind of an exercise in moralism. And, and, and what people left was, well, you got to do better. You got to love more people. You got to work harder. But if you read the story correctly, that's not what this story is about at all. The story is it's leading us to Jesus because you can't love like that on your own. I can't love like this, not like this. I need a savior. I need the fullness of the spirit. I need the power of the Holy Spirit in my life to love like this. Cause only Jesus loves like this. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, man, before we loved him, he loved us before we turned to him before we said, Hey, I'm sorry. We were still spitting in his face cursing him and while we were doing that he laid down his life for us. Jesus is the greatest demonstration of love for neighbor and love for enemies. So here's what we need. We need Jesus. We need the indwelling, the infilling, the power of his spirit. That's what we need. And that changes everything. So I'm going to conclude this message the same way Jesus concluded his message. And yes, this is plagiarism. I'm just going to tell you right now, okay? If you're going to plagiarize somebody, Jesus would be the one. Here's the end of the message. I stole it from Jesus. Go and do likewise.